A few weeks ago, I was really sick. And I'll tell you how sick I was by saying to you that I went to the doctor. Uh, you may not think that an unusual thing to go to the doctor, but I don't go to the doctor until I'm one step short of death. Um, I don't know what it is or why it is I do that, but when I went in to see the doctor, she said, well, you haven't been to see me in five years. That tells me it's somewhat serious. She prescribed what she could, ended up being viral, and said, go home and get some rest, which I dutifully did. Went into the bedroom, pulled the blinds, and made the room as dark as possible. Laid down in the bed, and I hadn't been there very long when I heard the door open. The hinges squeaked, and a little six-year-old girl came across the room. I'm laying like this. I muster all the strength I can and open my eyes. Yes, Grace. She says, Dad, I have something for you. Okay. So I woke up just a little bit, raised my head. She gave me a little card that she had made, a little handmade card, which is very sweet. And then she gave me what in our house is almost sort of a joke, because if you get it, it's not good for you. What she gave me was her stuffed lamb, who has the very appropriate nickname of Lammy. See, when you receive Lammy, it's because you're not feeling well. And Grace gives you Lammy to make you feel better. She gave me Lammy. She gave me the card, and in, in all the seriousness of a six-year-old, said, Now, Dad, I know you're not feeling good, but Lammy's here to make you better. So keep Lammy close. He'll get you through. I'm not sure if my six-year-old understood the depth of her theology, but if you are following along with us tonight in our journey with John, you'll want to go to John chapter 1 and start in verses 29 through 36. Because whether she meant to or not, what my six-year-old daughter said about my physical sickness is exactly what John tries to tell us for all that ails us spiritually. We suffer, of course, from a much deeper darker sickness than a virus or flu. And in much the same way, John points us to the Lamb. I'll have these verses on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible with you, but if you have one, follow along as I read. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven 
like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, Jesus, uh, next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. It's a hard lesson for us to get, partially because we don't live in that world, and partially because we're Gentiles. We're not used to seeing animal sacrifices, but this was a part of their everyday world. God required the Lamb. He was a part of the story almost from the beginning. The lamb. It wasn't just a cute, fuzzy, adorable stuffed lamb. The lamb was an integral part of the story. And that's what we're going to talk about as we look tonight. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, which in my study is the earliest time when the scripture speaks Of the Lamb. In Genesis 22, we are reading, of course, of the testing of Abraham. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Verse 2. Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Take him there, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. So early the next morning, Abram got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he carried the fire and the knife together. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his, to his father, Abraham, Father. Yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb or the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. I'm guessing a Sunday night crowd knows how that story will end, but it is No accident that that phrase is in the text. Starting with the lamb and reminding us that God required a sacrifice and it would be a a, a sacrifice which he himself would provide for. Turn in in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. It's the next time we read significantly about the lamb of God. Different type of lamb, of course. This was an actual lamb. 
the story of the Exodus, starting in verse, um, I said the Exodus, I should have said the Passover. Verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for the whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of the lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You may take from the, uh, you may take them from the sheep or the goats. The idea of what's happening in the story of Israel here is that it was the spotless male lamb that would keep them from death. As death passed through Egypt that night, it was the blood of that spotless male that would be on the doorpost and prevent death from entering the house. Your lamb shall be without blemish. So God will provide, it should be a spotless with unblemished lamb. Leviticus now, chapter 14. This involves the daily required sacrifices, the regular ongoing, the the, the types of things that sort of screws the PETA type people into the ceiling. It was a regular constant offering of blood. Leviticus chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 12. The priest is to take one of the male lambs and offer it as a guilt offering. He is to slaughter the lamb in the holy place where the sin offering and the burnt offering are are slaughtered. Like the sin offering, the guilt offering belongs to the priest. It is most holy. The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. God required the lamb. The lamb was to be spotless and without blemish. And the sacrifice would involve a great deal of blood. Don't you know, as you watch the lamb, from the time it was a little you. And brought forth and raised to a point you understood that the very purpose of the life of the Lamb was to offer that life in payment for your sin. As as part of your cleansing and part of your atonement. When John says, behold, the Lamb of God, the depth and the richness of that phrase resonated with them. Because from the moment of a lamb's birth, they understood his purpose was to be offered and to die. For all the blood spilled, however, none could take away the sin. No, we needed a much deeper, greater sacrifice. One that we couldn't even offer. The Hebrew writer says... It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sin. It was only a reminder. It required God himself to step in 
And so he did. Much like the story in Genesis chapter 2, God provided a lamb. In the book of John, the apostle of love has many different titles for Jesus. The lamb, the rabbi, the messiah, the Christ, the son of God, the king of Israel, the son of man. Over and over again, he uses these titles as descriptors for the deeper message of who Jesus was and what he came to do. So it is not insignificant that in our text that we're looking at tonight, John refers to him as the Lamb of God twice. God himself will provide this Lamb. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Of course, the Bible had told them what kind of Messiah to expect, but not every clue was heeded. It's as they did, as we often do, they came to the text with a certain amount of presupposition, assumption. They came to the text with a different picture than what God had in mind. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, the prophet Isaiah describes the Messiah as a suffering servant. And he says specifically in this way, speaking of the Christ, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. As the Lamb of God would stand before his accusers, it was said many times, don't you have anything to say? The gospel accounts tell us that he stood silent, saying very little, as a sheep before her shearers. Understanding his purpose was much deeper than what they could understand. It wasn't just any lamb. It was the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, verse 29 says. It's beautiful. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 Paul wrote, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, there's a little bit of back and forth there with the theologians on the meaning of that text. So in some translations it will say, he made him To be sin, some say a sin offering. Some say, well, you can't take the Son of God and make him sin. Much deeper language study than I want to get into tonight. But I think to some degree both translations are right. Sin offering, the idea that Jesus' blood atoned, propitiated for the sin, became sin. When, When he said, when he cried out to the Father... Why have you forsaken me? See, that time he was alienated from God. His back was turned. In John chapter 1, earlier we studied, he said in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Some commentators will say that in Genesis chapter 22, there's meaning there when Abraham was tested. 
There's meaning in the wood. There's meaning in the, the flint. There's meaning in the offering. That the wood represented the law of God. That the knife represented the justice of God. And of course, the, the, the requirement that was needed was an offering. What John says here seems to indicate that theology kind of seep, seeping through. That the law was given through Moses, but there's not enough just to have the law by itself. What it needed was grace and truth. It needed an offering. It needed an offering that couldn't have been provided by Abram or by any of us. God himself will provide the lamb. Now, this idea continues in John's writings. He's very clear and adamant about the meaning of the Christ being the lamb. And, of course, you remember the, the very last book of the Bible that he wrote. In Revelation, this vision that he had, Revelation chapter 5, what does he describe heaven as like? In uh, Verse 5. I'm sorry, chapter 5. <laughs> Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven on earth or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who is worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And one of the elders said to me, do not weep. You see, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw the lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are seven spirits that God sent out around the earth. He came out and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down around the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain with your blood. You purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, where you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to Him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Lamb. So there's so much depth from the beginning to the end of the picture of the beautiful Lamb of God. His sacrifice was made once for all. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 3 and 4 says, But in these sacrifices, he's speaking now under the old law, he says, There is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. You see, Jesus as the Lamb was the first and only sacrifice once for all. 
No more sacrifice is necessary. John would later write again in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He would say, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. The lamb's not just a sacrifice. He's not just the beginning. He's not just the end. He's the only way. The propitiation that came for your sins and the sins of everyone else in this room and the sins of everybody else not in this room. Now we have, of course, the sacrifice has been made, but we have to, of course, accept the sacrifice, to allow the price to be paid, to be declared righteous because not of what we did, but because of what he did. But when we do that, we then look to the Lamb, which is what verse 36, behold the Lamb of God. You see, we don't just go to Jesus for salvation from sin. We seek Jesus and behold Jesus and we live a life that is of the Lamb. That in every way seeks out his example and his model. First Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 20 if you'll turn there. Peter says, For you know... That it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you through, from our forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. And was revealed in these last times for your sake. The beautiful, sacrificial Lamb of God. And He is the one who paid the price. Beautiful and precious His blood. But we also look to Him as our example of how to live. It's not just a matter of what if you die tonight? You know, every good preacher can tell those stories. What happens if you die tonight? If you, if you lie down and just instantly your heart stops, you stop breathing, you go brain dead, and you step into eternity. What happens? I've heard so many of those stories. It's not just about what happens if you die tonight. It's also about what happens if you live tomorrow. What happens if you wake up and you, being of the precious lamb, fail to recognize the deep price that has been paid for your soul. The deep blood that has been shed that you might be forgiven. 
If you truly can understand and think of that, and it has no effect on how you live, on how you love, on how you serve, on how you worship, on how you work, what effect has it made? Jesus, when he was alive, never left anyone alone or the same. There was any no person, be they stranger or disciple, that came into contact with Jesus that left the very same person. If that was true in his life, how much more than in his resurrection? May we, may we, God forgive us, if we take hold of the Lamb of God and be buried and covered in his blood, washed pure and clean, and leave here and act as if nothing significant had happened. May God forbid we ever do such a thing Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> what then shall we do? What? What What next? Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us if Fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Man, when Jesus said in John 15, he said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. What a beautiful example of sacrificial love. Shouldn't that change then how we are toward our family, our spouse, our children, our co-workers? Shouldn't it change then how we behave toward strangers? You've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Your sins have been paid for. Your debt has been covered. Be then imitators of God because you have been bought at a price. Secondly, it doesn't just tell us how to love. His example shows us then how we can act and behave and suffering. Um, I lived in ignorance for a long time as I've gotten to be the, the preacher and expanded my base toward the um, over 18 crowd, shall we say. I have learned that there are a lot of, of our senior members at Northside that live in constant pain. I'm not sure if you understand what an encouragement you can't understand. It's impossible. You can't know for another 60 years. But to know what an encouragement it is to see those who are in chronic physical pain, who have physical conditions, that you know, there's nothing that can be done. It's just to, to grin and bear it. And they don't just grin and bear it. They worship and they serve and they love. How can they do that? They do that because of the Lamb. They do that because of His example. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For this, I'm sorry, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, 
He did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in the body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And we can reflect on the suffering of Christ and know that no matter what we suffer, No matter how horrible it may be, it pales in comparison to what our beautiful Lamb of a Savior suffered on the cross and even leading up to the cross. But what an example it gives us for when we suffer and when we struggle, when people even beyond physical suffering, when people inflict on us emotional suffering. You have an enemy, you have someone who chastises you, could be a stranger, could be a family member. We can see nobility in suffering through Christ by doing what he did. When we think of what he suffers and we understand how very little we suffer in comparison, we can look to him and say, if he did, I did. If he can press forward, so can I. So he gives us hope. He shows us how to love. He shows us the example to set in suffering. And finally, he gives us hope, eternal hope, for the coming resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting in verse 17. <clears throat> and if Christ has not been raised. Then your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people to be most pitied. But in fact, if Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ All shall be made alive. This past weekend, I did a funeral for an elderly member at Northside. Velma Elwood, her husband had just passed away four months prior. Uh, Those type of funerals are, you know, funerals aren't easy to do. But there are funerals where you can say with confidence, this person had their faith in Christ. Their eternity is secure. Their hope is secure. They're doing much better than we are. And we long for a reunion someday. You know why that is? In the wisdom of a six-year-old, it's because of the Lamb. Who makes everything all better. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But eventually... Resurrection, we win. Not because of anything we did, but because of everything the Lamb did. What a beautiful message from John. May we not soon forget it. Tonight, if you are not within the Lamb, then uh, you need to know Him, and you need to let Him wash away all your sins. We'd love to help you with that. If you haven't confessed His name, if you haven't repented of your sin, If you haven't put him on in the waters of baptism, 
want to help you do that, that you might know the Lamb and grow up to be just like Him. And if you're in the Lamb, but you've wandered, and you need some help from some of our shepherds or myself, we'd be glad to help you and pray with you and encourage you and love you, because we believe that's what the Lamb would do. Whatever your need is tonight, please come. I'll meet you down front as together we stand and sing.